I thought this morning as we uh, start a men's time together, uh, it'd be good to talk about beards for a second, So, um, because, you know, it, it's men. And so I've noticed with a, a beard of this particular length, there is a fine line uh, between hipster and homeless, uh, uh, between uh, prophet and prospector. And uh, that, that line is how well you keep it trimmed. And so I got here yesterday and realized I left my razor at home. Now, you might think I don't need a razor, but I just need to keep this just to keep you know, that, that line, fine line. So I went down into the lanes yesterday, and I went into a store, and I asked the guy, I said, can you, can, I'd like to buy the cheapest razor you have, because I left mine at home. And, and he looked at me, and he said, you're going to need something much bigger than my cheapest razor. Uh, so, but today, we are going to spend some time as we're launching into this, this men's series this year, uh, talking about a man with an iconic beard, uh, Moses. Uh, and of course, you know that's not Moses because Moses was married to a black woman. So clearly not Moses. Uh, uh, that's Joel. But this is Moses here. It's actually not Moses. That's Charlton Heston. But we didn't have a photograph of Moses. Now, now we're going to start today uh, talking about Moses because of how Moses is such an iconic fixture in Scripture. In fact, if you walked up to somebody and asked them on the street to name somebody uh, from the Bible, hopefully Jesus would come up. Um, but if Jesus didn't, I almost guarantee one of the first people, persons that people would bring up is Moses. And Moses would make sense. Uh, Moses in the Old Testament gets 767 shout-outs. In the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he gets 79 shout outs, which is not too shabby. Uh, for the New Testament, Moses wrote the first five uh, books of the Bible. He's the guy that God handed the law to on Mount Sinai. He is the guy that God used to set his people free from Egypt. He's the guy that God used to part the Red Sea. I mean, he, so this is an iconic figure, right? And the big question for me is why Moses? Why did God pick Moses to do all this stuff? Let me say it a different way. What is so special about Moses? Why Moses? To get to Moses, you got to start earlier, and you got to start all the way at the beginning of the Bible in, in Genesis, where, where God creates everything. Out of nothing, he creates everything, and, it, and it's perfect. And then sin enters this world that is, that is perfect and corrupts. And so sin is any failure that we have to reflect the image of God in our nature, our attitude, or our action. And that just infects all of the world. And so God, out of all of the world, picks this random dude by the name of Abraham and says to Abraham, I just pick you. And I pick you to get land, descendants, and blessing unconditionally. And through you and your offspring, the entire world is going to be blessed. And so at the end of Genesis, we land with the nation of Israel that came from Abraham being enslaved in Egypt. And that's where we meet Moses. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way swipe your way over to Exodus, or you could just look on the screens. We're going to start, work our way through Exodus and ask ourselves the question, what is so special 
about Moses. Starting in Exodus 1, uh, verse 7, it says this. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, now the, the context of this passage is slavery. Egypt has enslaved Israel, and yet even in the context of being enslaved, they are multiplying greatly. They are, they are increasing uh, greatly in the land. They are being fruitful and multiplying, the only command in Scripture that we ever consistently obey, right? And so they are consistently growing and being fruitful and multiplying. And if you know anything about world history, you know that if you have an insecure leader in any land, and within that land there is a group, a minority group, that is growing and influencing, that that insecure leader is going to freak out. And that's exactly what Egypt had an insecure leader uh, by the name of Pharaoh. And so this is what happened. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He's like, we have got this free labor force here of the Israelites in Egypt, and we don't want to lose them. We also don't want them to join forces with our enemies. We've got to figure out a way to stamp this down and keep them from being fruitful, keep them from multiplying greatly. And so he tells his people, what I want you to do is turn the screws, Right? I want you to tighten the clamps. I want them to be so busy um, being our slaves that they don't have time to increase greatly, to multiply, to be fruitful. I want them to be tired every single day. I want you to make their lives absolutely miserable, make them work harder. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now think about how crazy that is. They are in Egypt. Egypt has the upper hand. They are the masters. They are the ones in control. And yet they were in dread over their slaves. Isn't that crazy? They were in dread over their slaves. They were spooked. And one of the things you'll notice if you do a, a cursory glance through history is that this always happens with Israel. You can roll down through the pages of Scripture and you can see that the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans and the Egyptians all oppressed Israel and Israel continued to increase. In fact, if you go down through the pages of history, I found this, this site online that went through every generation since the time of Christ and how Israel was constantly oppressed even in this era. And yet, they still exist. Why? Let me ask you a different way. What's so special about Israel? So this king comes up with a new plan. He's like, these guys are continuing to flourish, and it doesn't matter how much we persecute them, they continue to multiply. He's like, we need a new plan, and this is his new plan. He tells the midwives, what I want you to do is every time a Hebrew baby is born, I want you to check out the sex of the baby when they're born, and if it's a boy, kill the baby on the way out of the womb, and that way we can slim down, get rid of the men, and that will slowly get rid of uh, the Israelites. And so this is the way I want you to handle it. But the 
midwives categorically would not do this. We're just not going to do this. And I love what this is in verse 20 and 21. And this is just think about this for a second. Every time the babies are born, the midwives look at the baby and they're like, well, we can't kill this baby. And so they wouldn't. And so the Egyptians got angry and they said, why is it that we still see a whole bunch of baby boys running around? There's not supposed to be baby boys. And the midwife's response is, well, here's the deal. This is what it says in Scripture. It says, the deal is um, Hebrew women just have babies too fast. And by the time we get there, the kid's running around already. There's nothing we can do about this. And so they flat out lie. All right? So they, they lie. And this is what it says in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families because God is cool like that. Right? And so what happens is they continued to multiply. And in this context, the king's like, okay, I need a new plan. My first plan didn't work. Plan B didn't work. We got to have a new plan. And here's this new plan. Now, if a baby is born and it is a male, they are to be thrown into the River Nile. That way, it doesn't matter if it was the day they were born or somebody finds them a week later or they find them a month later or three months later. If that baby is born, they are to be thrown into the river Nile. And this is the point in the story where we meet a Hebrew priest and his wife who have a little baby boy. And they love him. And they hide him. And they want to protect him. And for three months, they're able to keep anyone from finding out they've got this Baby boy, but if any of you have babies, you know they are not quiet folk, right? <laughs> and so they're trying to figure out how do we keep our baby from being found out. And the mom comes up with a relatively ingenious plan. She puts the baby into this little basket with a rope and rolls it, runs him out to some reeds in the River Nile and anchors him down so that he is, he's way out there and then puts his sister on the shore in the beach to watch him. So she's like babysitting him from the shore. It's, it's a brilliant plan until the king's daughter decides to take a bath in the River Nile. So she comes down with her entire entourage, and while she's taking a bath, she hears a noise in the reeds. And so she goes out to the reeds, and she fishes this little basket out, and, and in the basket is a baby. And it's not just a baby, it's a, it's a baby boy. And it's not just a baby boy, it's a Hebrew baby boy. Now, do you see the tension in this moment? She's standing in the river, right? And her dad made a rule that you throw all Hebrew babies in the river. Do you feel the tension of that moment? So you can kind of feel she's standing there with this, this little baby boy, this beautiful Hebrew baby boy, and, and she's trying to figure out, what do I do with this? Do I obey my dad, or what do I do with this baby? And then the unsung hero of the story shows up, the baby sister, who was babysitting him from shore, and she runs up to the queen or the princess, and in brilliant fashion says, what a beautiful baby. Do you need a nurse for that baby? A midwife that can help you take care of that baby? And you feel the tension, right? And so the princess says, sure. And the sister runs and hires her mom, the baby's mom, to get paid to watch the baby for the princess which is an absolutely brilliant moment in this story. And so now the princess brings him home to the palace. And I have no idea how she got away with that. I mean, think about this. She goes to the palace where her dad lives with a baby. How does she do that? The only thing that I can 
come up with is she was like a typical dude, or he, or he was like a typical dude who paid no attention, right? And then one day he's like, why is there a baby? And she's like, dad, you never pay attention to what happens in my life. And he's like, oh yeah, I knew about the baby. So, so there he is, this baby, and she names him Moses, which is a wonderful name because in Egyptian, it sounds like son, and in Hebrew, it sounds like the word drew out, like drew out from the river. Let's press pause here for a second. What's so special about Moses? So far, nothing. Moses is a slave who is secretly adopted by a princess. So maybe he had a little bit of... Um, societal position at that point, but there's nothing special about this guy. Now, let's fast forward 40 years. 40 years later in the story, chapter 2, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. That's called a plot twist. Forty years later, at some point, Moses has figured out who his people are. And I racked my brain for the longest time because I'm not very bright about how Moses knew. Like, did his mom tell him when she was the nurse? Did his sister tell him when he was the nurse? And then I remembered, because he would have been old enough, he would have been circumcised and would have been the only one circumcised in the entire palace. And so he knew who he was. He knew that he was uh, an Israelite. And so one day he went down and he saw this Egyptian just brutally beating another Israelite. And it angered him. And he looked around and he couldn't find anyone. So he beat that guy until he killed him and then buried him into the sand. Now think about that for a second. This is a complete combination of who he is. It is this intersection point between his Jewish blood causing him to have anger over the injustice toward the Israelite and his Egyptian privilege that caused him to think that he could get away with it. And those two things came together and he thought no one is ever going to know. Of course, one person knew. Who knew? The guy who was being beat by the Egyptian, right? And apparently he told pretty much everyone now, think about this for a second. Israel, at this point, has massive, grown within Egypt. But listen how fast this story carries. The very next verse. Um, when he went out the next day. Okay, so you need to think about how fast this story carried in Israel. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over me? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Just some random dude knows the story. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known, duh. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So what do we got going on here? Now, Moses has exposed himself both as um, an Israelite 
and as the Pharaoh's grandson and the insecure Pharaoh wants to kill him, so he runs away. He gets to Midian, um, which is kind of southeast of the land there. He sits down on a well. Uh, the, the, you can read the story when you get on. He, he meets this priest. Uh, he meets a priest's daughters, falls in love with the daughter, marries the daughter, and he starts a second career as a shepherd that he does for 40 years. Now, how old is Moses at this point? 80. Spent his first 40 years in the palace. He spends his next 40 years as a shepherd. This guy is now 80 years old. And what is so special about Moses? Nothing. He's an adopted slave. He's a murderer. He's a fugitive. He's a shepherd. And he's an old guy. There's just nothing uniquely special about Moses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Stop here for a second. God sees something. He sees suffering. He hears their cries, it says. It says he remembers his covenant. Now, that does not mean God forgot. When it says God remembers in Scripture, it means he calls to mind. He acts on a promise that he has made, and this is how he acts on it. If you've grown up in the church, if you've read the story, you know this story, and it's fantastic. Moses is walking along one day with his sheep, and he sees a bush, and the bush is burning, but the bush is not burning. And I think the literal translation in Hebrew was, what the? Right? He just, he's, like, he's just trying to figure, he's like, he's trying to figure out what happens, what's happening. So he goes to the side, and he looks at this bush, and he's like, this is totally weird. This thing is burning, but it's, 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 it's not burning. And then the bush says to him, hey, Moses. And if, if you read it, it, it's there in the verse. It says, Moses, Moses says it twice. Why? Because the first time the bush says, hey, Moses, he's like, what? <laughs> right? Like, and so he's, he's looking at the bush, and, and the bush says his name again. Um, and, and it says, a, a Moses, and he's like, a, a, a yeah, bush? Um, and, and the bush says, uh, take your shoes off because you are, you are, the land that you are on is, is holy. Now look at chapter six, uh, 3, verse 6. And the bush said, and we find out this is God, not the bush. Um, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now here's what's so cool. I don't know that Moses knows who his dad is. It's been 80 years and we don't have any context that tells us that Moses knows who his dad is, but God knows who his dad is and God says, I am the God of your dad. What was his dad? He was a priest. I am the God of your dad, the priest. I'm the God of Abraham to whom I promised some stuff. I'm the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob, and Moses is like, I can't even look at this bush. He begins to freak out. 
And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which sounds gross and sticky, but that's a good thing. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. What does God say? I've seen. I've heard. I know. And I'm going to deliver them. Now imagine you're Moses at that moment. What's your reaction? Moses is like, I cannot wait for this. Forty years ago, I saw this oppression. I killed a dude because of the oppression, right? And now this bush says it's going to take care of the oppression. (laughs) And I cannot wait to see the Egyptians' face when this bush marches into Egypt burning and not burning, and they get to freak out like I'm freaking out, right? And so Moses is like, I am in. This is fantastic. But then God, then God drops the bomb on him. Verse 10, he says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. <laughs> you're going to, you're, Me? Like, like me, I, I'm an 80-year-old dude. I've been a shepherd for 40 years. Before that, I killed a guy. I hit him in the sand. Nobody likes me. The Egyptians don't like me. The Israelites don't like me. Not me. Like, it, it can't possibly be me. What is so special about me? And the rest of chapter 3 and the rest of chapter 4 is Moses trying to convince God why he is uniquely unqualified for the job. And I have to say, I agree with Moses. He is not qualified for this job. Verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, And God said, I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. You ready for the sign? I sent you. You don't need another sign. That's the whole sign. The sign is, I sent you, and when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Who am I to do this? It doesn't matter. I picked you. That's the sign. I chose you. That's the sign. I will be with you. That's the sign, the only sign you need is I sent you, and I'm telling you, you're going to worship me on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I say to them? I mean, I, I, I know you told me that, like, you're the, 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 the God of my father and, and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what am I going to do, tell them, a bush sent me? Like, is this what I'm going to tell them? A, a, a bush sent me, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. My name is I am. I hear. I see. I picked Abraham. I picked you. I will redeem I am. That's who is sending you. 
How do you respond to that? Well, here's Moses. God says, they will listen to your voice. And you're to say to the elders of Israel, this is, by the way, the plan that God gives him. And they will listen to your voice, and, uh, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, your, uh, the God of Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's the whole plan. The plan is, Moses now has to go back and convince the people who have not seen him for 40 years, who hate his guts, to go with him to the king who hates his guts, and to say, I have an idea. We've talked to God. He says we should take a holiday. We're slaves. We'd like a little holiday. Three-day trip into the desert. One day of sacrificing. Three days back. Just a week off. That's what we need. That's the whole plan. But that's not the whole plan. Here's the rest of the plan. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. So the plan is convince the people who don't like you to go talk to the, people who don't, the guy that doesn't like you and tell them that God said you should take a holiday and he's going to say no. That's the plan. Um, unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand, strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that he'll let you go. So the plan is, find the people who don't like you, go to the guy who doesn't like you, uh, tell him to let you go on holiday. He's going to say no, and then I'm going to do some stuff, and then he'll let you go. <laughs> Would you follow that terrible plan if you were Moses? Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Can you, just for a second, imagine, he's having this argument with a bush. Like for two chapters, he's arguing with a bush. He says, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord didn't appear to you. They're not going to believe me. So God says, All right, what is that in your hand? And Moses is like, It's my stick. You know, his little staff thing with the curve, you know. And God's like, throw it on the ground. Okay. He throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. And what it says is, I have to read this because it's so great. It says, and he threw it, said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. <laughs> Which makes him the world's worst shepherd. Because shepherds are supposed to kill snakes. Of course, they kill snakes with their stick. Ah, he didn't have a stick anymore. So his stick is running around as a snake. And then God's like, now I want you to pick up the snake. Moses is like, well, the bush can burn and not burn. I'm in. So he's like, uh, right? So imagine. So he, he, he grabs, grabs the snake. Poof, the snake turns back into a stick. And now God says, put your hand into your cloak. So he puts his hand into his cloak. He says, take your hand out of the cloak. Pulls his hand out of the cloak. It's covered with leprosy. Well, that's nice. And then God's like, put your hand back in your coat. So he puts his hand back in his coat. Now pull your hand out of the coat. Pull it out. No leprosy. And God's like, listen, are you in? Now, I have racked my brain trying to think, okay, do I have delusions of grandeur? Because I think I would be in. Like, the bush that doesn't burn is talking to me. All of this stuff has just happened. I think at this point, I am in. Moses is not in. God says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter signs. If they don't believe you, the two signs will listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water shall become, from the Nile will become blood on the ground. At this point, are you listening to God? Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow speech and of tongue. 
He says, God, I can't say stuff good. Before words, no use word good, now no use word good either. And, and he's like, I, I, I'm not going to be able to speak for you. And, and, and the Lord said, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. And I will teach you how to speak. I made eyeballs, I made ears, I made hearts, I made mouths. I got this. Right? I, I, and then he gives his final plea to God. Verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. What is his last plea to God? I don't wanna. That's it. Can you identify with that? Maybe you have been walking closer and closer and closer to adultery. Whether it be popping out your phone and surfing for pornography or beginning to build a little bit more of an emotional relationship with that person than you know you should. And you know, come on, men of God, you know what Scripture says about marriage. That is a lifelong marital covenant between one man and one woman. You know what Scripture says. When you pull out the phone or you talk to that girl, you just say, I don't want to. Maybe there's that person that has constantly sinned against you. Again and again and again. And, and you know that Jesus says there's no limit to your forgiveness of that person. <laughs> but you just don't want to. Maybe you've seen injustice in this world. It's right there. It's on your street. It's in your flat. And you know that God has called his people to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with their God. But you know it's going to cost you something to stand up for justice. You just don't wanna. And so what you do is you argue with God. Over and over and over you argue with God. And maybe you don't tell anyone you're arguing with God. Maybe it's behind the, the platitudes of, of worshiping from the outside while your heart inside is corrupted and running far from God. But you argue with him over and over and over again till you just get to the point where you say to God, God, the bottom line is, I just don't wanna. God, will you please send somebody else to love my wife, to forgive this person, to stand against injustice? I don't wanna. What's so special about Moses? Nothing. He's just like you. He's just like me. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron? Hey, look, it's your brother, the Levite. 
Now, I don't know if Moses has seen his brother in 80 years. God's like, look at your brother. I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God to him. Which is like every brother's favorite verse. <laughs> God said I am to be like God to you. So, um, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses says, I don't want to, and God says, you're going to, because I picked you. There's no other reason. I picked you, so you're going to do it. And the rest of the book of Exodus is God doing what he said he was going to do through Moses, who doesn't want to do what God told him he was going to do, but he does it. I don't know about you, but the story of Moses is simultaneously encouraging and utterly discouraging. It's encouraging because I'm reminded that God picks nobodies like us, jacked up people who don't want to obey, and he does extraordinary things through us. I'm discouraged because I see myself in Moses. What's so special about Moses? I'm glad we have the New Testament because it tells us something that Exodus doesn't. In Hebrews 11, it says this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hold on to that one. He considered the reproach of Christ, hold on to that one, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward by faith. He left Egypt, not afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn may not touch them. Moses' mom and his dad had faith. Moses had faith. Faith to give up his privilege to stand with the oppressed. Faith to lead Israel out of Egypt, faith to uh, launch the first Passover feast. And who did he have faith in? That's the crazy thing. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ. And I think a better translation actually says the reproach for the sake of Christ. He considered the reproach for the sake of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What is crazy is Moses was looking at Jesus. Without even knowing he was doing this. He knew that, that God was going to send a Messiah to save the world. He was looking forward to the seed of Abraham that would redeem the world, the offspring of Abraham. And he considered the reproach of that once future Messiah to be greater than the wealth of Egypt. He said, in all that I have, I would rather have Jesus. Jesus is better. 
when you're walking closer and closer and closer to adultery, Jesus is better. When you don't want to forgive, because you're just so tired of forgiving that person for the same thing, Jesus is better. When you don't want to stand for injustice because of what it's going to cost you, Jesus is better. The reproach for the sake of Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Moses had faith in Jesus. And what did that faith look like? Nothing special. <laughs> he just had faith. What's so special about Moses? <laughs> Jesus is what's so special about Moses. Faith is what's so special about Moses. And you have those same things that Moses had. I don't know what you brought in today. I don't know if it's there. I don't know if it's here. I don't know if it's here. I don't know if it's something else. But I know there's something going on. There's some spot in your life, because every day that spot is in my life, where you're saying, I don't want to. I just don't. There's nothing special about you. You are like every man that has ever lived with the exception of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? After a sinless life, he died on the cross for your unwillingness to deal with your sin. He was buried. He rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And then he handed you his righteousness. And he says, you are now my representative in this world. So be a faithful husband. Forgive. Stand for justice. Because you have faith in me. What I want to do is I'm just going to close in prayer. And then I'd like you to grab two or three guys around you. And here's the deal. If you're ready to say what that thing is that you don't want to do, say it. Verbalize it. And let those men pray for you. If you're not ready to go there yet, it's okay. Just say, pass. And they'll pray for you anyway. Because God is patient with us. Look at how patient he was. I mean, his anger burned with Moses, but he was just continue to work on him. So he'll be patient to you. Just say, pass. You know what it is. He knows what it is. So the people around you will pray for that and Jesus will know. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to take a few minutes to pray with two or three people around you and then we're going to continue in worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this unremarkable man, Moses. And we thank you. I remember a friend used to say, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody. <laughs> Thank you that we are, there's in a sense nothing special about us. And yet you love us so much that you gave us Jesus' righteousness 
so that there'd be something extraordinarily special about us. And so we just pray that we would have faith, the faith of Moses and his parents, the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the faith to do those difficult things to say no to the fleeting pleasure of sin so that we may say yes to Jesus. Help that to be an example to our world. I think of the passage we heard earlier, 1 Timothy. To set an example in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. Help us to be examples here in Brighton, Hove, (laughs) of those things so that more people will come to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.